Jim, you didn't sing the song that you sang at Solar Servants yesterday. From what I understand, I was the theme for, I was a key part of it. Okay, we'll have to sing that song at some point. You and Mike, right? <laughs> Thank you for being here this evening. You know, I love to do weddings. As a preacher, I love to officiate weddings. Got one coming up. I love to do weddings. I don't understand the preachers who have it written into their contract, and there are some that have it written into their contract that they will not do funerals or weddings. I enjoy doing both. Actually, I do. I enjoy doing funerals as well. I don't enjoy the occasion for why we have a funeral. You know, you get tired of doing funerals after a while because of so much death and despair. But a funeral is a great opportunity to meet extended family to be together with them at a time of hurting, and I relish that opportunity. I love weddings as well. You think about it as a minister, you get to be with people in their most uh, momentous occasions, the birth of a child, wedding, funeral. And so I love doing weddings. But in every wedding I've done, the one common theme in all of them is the bride is always beautiful. Always. The bride is always beautiful. She always looks stunning as she walks down the aisle. And something that has never happened when I've done a wedding, this has never happened. I'm standing there waiting for the bride to walk down the aisle with the groom and his groomsmen. I've never had somebody lean over to me and goes, that bride sure is ugly. <laughs> I've never had that happen. And I don't think I ever will have that happen. That's a no-no, right? You don't do that. You never comment on the bride unless it's to say she's beautiful. Because every bride is beautiful. And yet, all too often, on social media, on blogs, from the pulpit, you hear people talking poorly of Christ's bride. We see it in so many churches. There's fighting, there's backbiting, there's gossip, there's slander. People speaking ill of the Lord's family, His bride. And this type of behavior is not constructive, obviously. It's very destructive. I've heard people say, I love Jesus, I just don't like his church. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? That's a concept completely foreign to our Lord. Jesus never would have understood that type of thinking. It's as if you're saying, Jesus, I love you, but your bride, ah, she leaves something to be desired. Man, how would you feel if somebody said something about your wife? If somebody commented on her beauty in a negative way? You'd be ready to fight, wouldn't you? Because you don't do that. You don't speak ill of my wife. You don't say things about her that, that would be condescending, rude. You just don't do that. And yet it happens all the time concerning Christ's bride. The Bible is very clear as to the beauty of Christ's church. Scripture goes to great lengths to describe her beauty, a beauty that is defined by holiness and purity. The Bible is equally clear as to Christ's feelings about his church. You're going to criticize something he died for? He died for these people. This is his blood-bought people, his family. And so when there's backbiting and backstabbing, when we gossip and slander about a brother or sister, when there's jealousy, envy, strife, when these things have a stranglehold on our hearts, it mars the beauty of his bride. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be responsible for being a wart on Christ's bride. I don't want to intentionally mar her beauty. I don't want to be responsible 
for her having bruises and being battered. I think you're all with me on this. I tell you what I can do. I can do everything possible, and you can as well, to make certain that we preserve her beauty. That we are attractive so that people see the beauty of Christ's bride in us, right? So they look at us and they see a reflection of Christ and his beauty. The church needs more bodybuilders. People who are willing to build up the body, not bash it or tear it down. People are seeking to beautify the church rather than deface her. I can almost understand why the world is so hostile to the church. I mean, I I guess I can wrap my mind around that a little bit. What I can't understand is why so many Christians are hostile towards the church. Maybe they've had a bad experience. That does happen. Look, let's be honest here. Not all churches are beautiful. But if a church isn't a beautiful bride, guess what? It's not because of Jesus. It's because of the people who are making up that church. So we have to inject some honesty, right? There are churches that are far from beautiful. There are churches that are ugly. And sadly, there's no defending their wretchedness. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Starting verse 25, you've heard these words before. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Again, Christ died for his bride. He bought her, which means that he plans, on, he plans on her being a beautiful representation of him in the world. He plans on bringing her back at some point, meeting up with her again, taking her with him to dwell with him for all eternity. Sadly, there are times when Christ's bride is rather plain looking. Maybe she has a few age spots or more than a few wrinkles. There are days when she's not all that pretty to look at, and there are times when she's just downright ugly. The church in Corinth may have fit that billing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 20 and following, Paul writes, For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. In essence, Paul says, I'm afraid of what I'm going to find when I come to you. I'm a little nervous about this because I'm afraid of what I'm going to see. He goes on with these different ideas of what he'd been hearing about quarreling and jealousy and anger and and hostility. Who wants to be a part of a family like that? I mean, Paul's mission was to seek and save the lost, right? I mean, he was one of the greatest missionaries, if not the greatest missionary that ever lived. And we know that Paul had a great concern for the churches, not just for them to get along and for there to be an inward peace, but also because he knew that the church was a representation of Christ in the world, that they were the story that was to be told, the agency by which the gospel was to be spread. And so it was imperative that they get along, that they present themselves as beautiful, as holy, as pure, because that was going to make the biggest statement in the world. But who wants to be a part of a family where there's disorder and dysfunction? I mean, 
jealousy, anger, strife, hostility. I have that in my life all the time. I have that in my job. I have that at school. I have that in my own family. I I don't want that when I come to church. I don't want the, the church to be an extension of that. I don't need all this chaos when I come to church as well. I've got enough of that in my own life. Notice the message that our Lord sends to the church in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, it reads, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. On the outside, this church seemed to be beautiful. The Lord even compliments them on their stance for truth. But, he says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. There's a lot of religious activity going on, but you have abandoned your first love. You forgot what the glue was that holds all of this together. Christ's bride loses her beauty when we forget her purpose. So we can't get so consumed with the social aspect or the religious activity or spinning all the plates that we neglect the spiritual. We can't be so consumed with the outer appearance that we lose sight of the mission. We can't get so zeroed in on land blasting everyone around us that isn't doing the right thing that we abandon our first love. Here's the simple message for the church. Back then, when Paul was writing to the churches, back in Revelation, when Jesus was was talking to these churches, and for us today, the message is simple. Don't be ugly. Don't be ugly. Don't give the church a bad name. Don't cause her to be unattractive. We live in a day and age where the general public is not all that receptive to the church or to Christianity. In fact, many in our nation are repulsed by, by Christians and the church. Some have extreme hatred towards us. They don't need any help in finding a reason to not like us. And for some, no matter what we do, it's going to be that way. No matter how holy, how pure, no matter how kind or compassionate we are, some are never going to change their view, but that's never an excuse to be less than what we should be. Don't be ugly. Be like Christ. That's always enough. So what does that look like? Well, I think the Bible presents four ways in which we can be attractive. And some of these you've heard of before, but it bears repeating. Four ways. Be salty. Be bright. Be readable and be smelly. The Bible presents four ways in which we can be attractive. The first is to be salty. Chapter 5, verse 13 of Matthew, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. To be salty here means to be pure, to be distinctive, to be tasteful and valuable because salt served those purposes in Jesus' time. That's why he uses it as his analogy. Salt was used as a preservative. It was used to give flavor like it is today. It was even used as a, as, as a trading measure for currency. It was distinctive. You know, salt has more than 14,000 known uses. Most of us view it as pretty plain and generic. I mean, until you have to do without it, right? We are a valuable commodity. Like salt, we are worth something. 
Wearing that Christian name means that we are distinct, that we are worth something, that we are set apart. We are a preservative in a world that is rotting, that is spoiling. This present world is decaying. And so like salt, we are preservative. We must be the ones who give hope to a lost and dying world. We preserve things like honesty and integrity and uprightness and purity and holiness, things that have been sorely compromised. And we are the ones who give flavor to a bland and insipid world. We are the seasoning. We give zest to life. We give taste to the tasteless state of being. Life without Christ is truly a flavorless existence. Christians make this life more palatable. But then we are called to be bright as well. Jesus continues in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Very simply, we are to be transmitters of God's glory. This light that we shine is not our own. We are to illumine the character of Christ. That's what we are illuminating. Is the character of Jesus. It's not the light of our own that we shine. It's his light. That is our goal. We shine this light to glorify him. It is who we are. And in the process, we illuminate the lives of others. We bring light to the darkness. You've heard me say it before. We're like one of those bug zappers. We attract people to it, except we just don't zap them when they get there. But we're trying to draw people in. We're trying to attract them by this bright light. Because the world is shrouded in darkness. And as soon as light enters into darkness, light wins. Always. Every time. Light always dispels darkness. And that's what our job is. To dispel the darkness. Immorality is like a cloud that hides the sun and hinders its rays from shining through. And it is amid this darkness that we must be found shining our light. Because the purpose of light is to dispel darkness darkness we are a light because of our connection to the source as i said christ is the true light we are simply luminaries reflecting his light just as the moon reflects the sun we reflect the light of our lord so we are to be salty we are to be bright and we are to be readable notice what it says in second corinthians chapter three paul refers to us as living letters Starting in verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you and from you, or from you? You are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So the Corinthian brethren were Paul's letter of recommendation. You know, a lot of times when someone would travel to a new community, they would have to bring letters of commendation or letters of recommendation. And so Paul is saying, you're my letter. You're my letter. Look at you. Look at where you were and look at where you are now. Still not perfect, but look at where you came from and look at where you are now. When people read our lives, they should see hope. When people read our lives, they should see a reference letter for Christ. This letter continues to be circulated today, and our message should be clear and well presented. We should be readable because we are a walking billboard for Christ and Christianity, for his mission. We are a living, breathing epistle written in the blood of our Savior. And as living letters, 
we are a reflection of the author. We are a reflection of his work. People are reading this epistle and looking to see if it lives up to the intent of the author. Do you live up to the intent of the author? There are few things in this world more powerful than a committed Christian. Do you believe that? Few things in this world more powerful than a dedicated disciple. The eye of the world takes him more than the ear. I think about that sometimes, and, and I wonder, you know, is anybody even listening sometimes? I mean, I know you guys are, but I wonder, you know, is the TV program really even doing any good? Is the podcast doing any good? I, I think about that constantly. Is my voice still being heard? But the truth of the matter is, more people are watching my life and your life than they're listening to my words anyway. You may be the only Bible someone ever reads. You may be the only religious book anyone ever opens. There are countless people all around us who will never open a Bible, but they're reading us. So are they able to clearly and legibly read Christ in our lives? Do they see a reflection of the author? Because more people are looking at your life than listening to my sermons. What are they reading? And finally, back up to chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, and Paul uses another descriptive for Christians and their influence. Beginning in verse 14, he writes, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? When my son was really small, he came up to me and he said, Dad, smell me. Now, for a young boy who didn't like to bathe, that was an interesting uh, proposition. I wasn't sure what I would smell, but I obliged and I leaned in, and to my surprise, he smelled really good. It was my cologne. He had put on some of my cologne, and he said, Dad, now I, just, I smell just like you, and he was proud of that. And it made me wake up to the reality that I have influence, good or bad, I have influence on my children, perhaps on others, but people are smelling my life to see if it is a fragrant aroma. What do people smell when they take a sniff of you? Do they get a whiff of Christ? Is it a sweet smell? Because we all know there are smells that make us glad and there are smells that make us gag. A fresh baked batch of chocolate chip cookies coming out of the oven, that's a smell kind of like no other, right? That gets my taste buds going, mouth watering. But running over a dead skunk... Getting that smell, that's, that's quite the, the opposite, right? You ever walked into a, a locker room after football practice? Bunch of guys that don't wash their equipment. That's a smell that'll make you gag. There are smells that make us glad and there are smells that make us gag. We are to be the swell, sweet smell. I don't know why I wrote that like, like that. That's hard to say. We are to be the sweet smell of the triumphant Christ. And we want others to join us in the victory parade. Those who accept Christ in faithful obedience will smell the sweet perfume of life. Unfortunately, as Paul says, those who refuse the gospel will smell the stench of death. 
but it is our duty to smell as pleasing as possible. It is our role and responsibility to be smelly Christians. Smelly in the best possible way, of course, because there are some Christians that have no problem being smelly, but we, we want to say smelly in the best possible way. So let me ask you a series of questions. Do we permeate? Are we an odor that embeds itself in the lives of others? Is our aroma impossible to ignore? Do we linger? A good smell will kind of linger, and you smell it for quite some time. Is the odor we emit one that is hard to get rid of? Do we change our environment? When we enter a room, do we immediately improve the air quality? Does the aroma we give off reflect the source? In other words, do we smell like the Savior? When people get a whiff of us, is it undeniable that we are a Christian? How do you smell? Here's the takeaway. If we want to express the superiority of Christianity in a sin-stained world, then we have to start by living it. We just can't tell others. We, we've got to live it. We've got to demonstrate it through action. A life lived for Christ is the best sermon ever preached. Like it or not, we are all advertisements for Christianity. We judge a restaurant by the quality of the food. We, just, uh, we, we judge a craftsman by the quality of his work. And we judge a church, like it or not, by the men and women who attend there. And how great would it be if the evaluation of this church is people saying, you got some beautiful people who go there. You've got some really bright people that go to church there. You've got some really smelly people that attend that Oldham Lane Church of Christ. A lot of lights there. What is it that we are striving for? Christians should be the best bosses, the best employees, the best teachers, the best little league coaches, the best colleagues, the best husbands, the best wives, the best fathers, the best mothers, the best at everything. People react to our lives. What they see could have a direct impact on whether or not they ever pursue a relationship with Jesus Christ. We had a, a lady at the church in Cassville, Missouri. Her name is Lana Couch. I used to call her uh, Nana Lana because that's what my kids called her. She was like a, a grandmother figure to our kids, a wonderful lady that I still keep in touch with, love her to death. But Lana brought so many people to church. She would invite, yes, but most of all, she was a teacher in this small community, and these former students and parents would take notice of her life. She lost her husband right before I got there. He had a massive heart attack. She raised three boys on her own, three boys and a girl, raised them on her own. And so many people looked at her as such an honorable lady, a holy woman who always loved God and loved others. And she brought so many people to church. There are so many people at that church that are still there because... They saw her life, they read her letter, and they said, I want this too. What a great testament to a life well lived, that we could bring others in, that we could be attractive, that we could, we could have others want what we have because they see Christ living in us. You know, one day the, the church, the bride is going to walk down that aisle and meet the groom. 
What condition will she be in? Well, that's really up to us, isn't it? Will she be pure and beautiful and glowing, ready to meet him? This will no doubt be a glorious occasion, but if the wedding took place today, what would Christ's bride look like? Would she be what the groom expected? She should be beautiful, she should be pure, she should be holy, she should be everything that the groom expects. The Lord desires his bride to be beauty to the world. So what are we doing to meet those expectations? Are we preparing for the wedding day? And you say, well, okay, well, how do we prepare for the wedding day? Very simple. Be salty. Be bright. Be readable. Be smelly. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful bride that is Oldham Lane. We pray, Lord, that we always strive for greatness in your sight, that we always seek to be lovely and pure and holy, beautiful to you and also to those around us. May we seek to promote her to everyone we come in contact with. And God, may we be leaders and may we be followers. May we lead others to Christ and may we follow you always. We love you. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here today. This is a beautiful church, and I'm proud to be a part of this congregation. If we can help you tonight, Jim's going to lead us in a song. Uh, we'd love to, to pray with you, study the Bible with you, help you take that next step in faith, whatever that is. If it's baptism, let's do that. Let's take care of that tonight. Whatever your need is, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.